thank you. Stop. Stop. I do, I do, I do want to thank the, uh, the good Dr. Reverend Gillespie for uh, the invitation to be here at the Crosswalk Cathedral. This is a, this is a marvelous uh, opportunity to join some good brothers and sisters down south to, to sing and to talk about Jesus. So thank you so much, Tim, for uh, your invitation and your hospitality. Let's dive in. The filmmaker Terrence Malick argues there are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. And for a few minutes this morning, I want us to consider, with help of our Apostle Paul, what these two ways are, how to move from one to the other, and why it matters. I received my first lessons in the way of nature beginning when I was just 20 months old. He was born, and they named him David. And like the biblical character, he was a bit warlike in nature. Though we have no evidence that he killed a bear or a lion or a giant, he was a thorn in my side, and I was a thorn in his side. From the beginning, two brothers separated by less than two years. If you have siblings, maybe you can relate. We turned everything into a battlefield. The backyard, a battlefield. The basketball court, a battlefield. The basement, where we, we would each get a bucket of tennis balls and hit them at each other as hard as we could until someone went screaming up to mom and dad. The basement, a battlefield. But most of all, and I know uh, anyone with siblings can relate, the back seat of mom and dad's car. <laughs> all out war. Uh, we fought constantly about everything. He'd run into my bedroom and dump a bucket of water on me and I'd start chasing him down and I'd be pounding on him. He'd pick up the phone and call our grandmother across the street, <laughs> Grandma, Alex is trying to kill me. Which was true, actually. <laughs> Sibling rivalry. We know what that is. The way of nature. But then we grow up and it turns into the way that we live our lives, where all the world becomes our siblings, our human brothers and sisters. And we discover that we are constantly fighting and struggling for position, for power, for significance, for place in this world. And I have to tell you as a pastor, if I could play for you all of the men and women who've come into my office for counseling, men and women who are depressed and discouraged and broken and wondering where they might go in life, in almost every single instance, the source of their discontent, they aren't smart enough compared to someone else. They aren't young enough or beautiful enough compared to someone else. They don't have a place in this world in comparison to someone else. The way of nature, the hyper-competitive reality that we face as human beings warring against the human soul. And I suggest this morning no matter where you might find a battlefield, it at least happens here for many of us. 
At night, when we put down our devices for the very last time and turn off the lights, when our head hits the pillow and we begin to do an audit of where we sit in the world and what we've accomplished and how we rank and how we are loved, in the silence of those dark moments, we come to grips with this default mode, the way of nature. I don't want to push it too far, but I think that we have to at least acknowledge where this way takes us when it goes to the extreme. Great tragedy of the 20th century, the Holocaust, the work of Adolf Hitler. His philosophy behind all of the cruelty he did to other human beings. Let me read to you a couple paragraphs from Mein Kampf, his, his manifesto, his view of life. If nature does not wish that weaker individuals should mate with the stronger, she wishes even less that a superior race should intermingle with an inferior one. Because in such cases, all her efforts throughout hundreds of thousands of years to establish an evolutionary higher state of being may thus be rendered futile. But such a preservation goes hand in hand with the inexorable law that is that, that the strongest and the best who must triumph and that they have the right to endure. He who would be alive must fight. He who does not wish to fight in this world where permanent struggle is the law of life has no right to exist. You see, all Hitler was doing was taking the natural course of the way we humans function. Social Darwinianism, a fight between human beings that the strongest might finally vanquish those who we deem to be weak. This is the law of nature. This is the battle of the fittest. This is the great evolutionary scramble to which we have all been born and it's killing us. Our Apostle Paul, we've been blitzing through the book of Romans here at Crosswalk, in the last verse of chapter number 12, says, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil. Interesting. Now, in the verses immediately preceding this entreaty, the subject is enemies, our enemies, do not be conquered by evil, Paul says. And then in the verses immediately following this uh, entreaty, the apostle takes up the subject of big, powerful government. I remind you, Paul is writing to Christians living in Rome, the seat of huge power. Enemies, big power. Do not be conquered by evil, Paul says, but conquer evil. Does he have in mind the way of nature? Is this a pep talk on getting with the program and defeating all these competitors in life? Is that what Paul is envisioning? But then notice he adds these words. First, in the conversation about enemies, he says, no, you must bless them. Seek no revenge against them. Feed them when they're hungry. Give to them. 
And then in the conversation about big government, he uses these words, you should submit to them, pay taxes, provide honor, give all due respect. No, you see, when Paul says to us, living in this dark world, do not be conquered by evil, he does not mean now is the time to go fight against your competition. Instead, the enemy, the evil he has in view, is the game itself, the way of nature. The way of nature that's destroying every one of us in this room as our default mode when we wake up in the morning. Our apostle is saying to us, it is time to move from the insidious, hellish world, the way of nature, and pivot to the way of grace. Now, just to make sure that these categories are becoming clear to us this morning, a story. When our little girl, Audrey, was about to turn five, my wife and I planned a birthday party for her. Five little girls, five little boys. And of course, if you've ever planned a birthday party for a child, you know you've got to think very carefully. The right foods, the right crafts and games and decorations, the experience needs to be perfect for a five-year-old. So the event happens, everything is going swimmingly well. And then I mentioned, hey, everybody, moms, dads, kids, we're all going to go to our basement and play a game called musical chairs. Has anybody played the game musical chairs before? We all haul down to the basement where we have a piano. Ten chairs are in a circle pointing outward. The rules of the game are explained to the five little boys and five little girls. I go over to the piano and I start to play. Kids jump out of their seats per the rules of the game, and they start running in a circle. My wife removes one of the chairs. I play a few more bars. The music stops. Ten little children rushing for nine available seats. All of them find one except one little boy. He's too slow. Immediately, tears burst out of his eyes, running down his face. He goes screaming and yelling over to the arms of his mommy and daddy. Well, Nicole and I, my wife, we look at each other and and as if to say, that didn't go exactly like we thought it would. (laughs) So I started to play again. This time, nine little boys and girls jump out of their seats. They start running in a circle. My wife removes another chair. I play a couple more bars. The music stops. Nine little ones rushing for eight available seats. This time, a little girl is not fast enough. Immediately, Tears burst out of her eyes, come pouring down her face. She runs over into the arms of her mommy and daddy. And now, Nicole and I have a a whole room full of parents looking at us as if to say, you fix this and fix it now. Well, I tried to muster whatever persuasive skills I had, coaxing that little girl and little boy back into the game, replacing the two chairs. Go to the piano and I start playing the music. Little boys and girls jump out of their seats, running in a circle, but this time no chair is removed. (laughs) I play a few more bars, the music stops. Five little boys and five little girls rushing for 10 available seats. And they screamed and they yelled and they laughed and they said, Pastor Alex, play it again, play it again. 
And we played that game, and I played that piano until my fingers were raw. A whole new game. From a race to a dance. From a competition to a celebration. From scarcity to abundance. The way of nature and the way of grace. Same piano, same music, same chairs, same participants, a completely different game. In Romans 12 and 13, our apostle says to us, the way of nature is going to get people killed. It's going to destroy lives. It is not the way. But instead, try this, the way of grace, and everything will change. Well, that's good enough. Thank you, Paul. But how? After all, as I mentioned, we woke up this morning into a world of competition, the law of nature. It is the natural world. It is naturally what happens. Paul makes a couple interesting comments. In the little section on enemies, he says simply, make room for God. Interesting. Make room for God. And then in the little uh, section about big government, he says, remember that the powers that be are slaves of, are servants of God. Paul hints to us that it is God somehow thinking theologically that provides a foundation by which we can make this difficult but important shift. Now, I've been watching the last several weeks here uh, as Pastor Tim has been diving into some pretty good theology. So I want you to lean in for a second. We're going to talk history and theology for a moment. First, remember, Paul is a world-class intellect in the first century. In fact, in places like Acts chapter 17, we see that he is a master of the Greco-Roman political philosophies. He understands the visions of deity and how they fit into the culture in, in a high, at a very high level. Second, we know from the New Testament that Paul has become a leading expert in first century Judaism, in the Torah, in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, he even acknowledges he's gone past many of his own generation. He is the Pharisee of Pharisees, the student of the great Gamaliel, trained in Jerusalem. He is a world-class scholar of first century Jewish thinking about God. And finally, and this observation I credit to the Anglican historian N.T. Wright, upon his conversion to Christianity, his Damascus Road experience, Paul essentially, for over a decade, for some 14 years, really pulls back. And Wright believes that Paul is rereading the entirety of the scriptures, rethinking the whole of life, adjusting all of his presuppositions theologically in light of Jesus, who he almost likely was an eyewitness to because Paul was based in Jerusalem, and second, who he was rereading and rethinking about in light of the whole of Israel's history. So Paul is an expert in the Greco-Roman world, the Jewish world of the first century, and he is, I would argue even today, the greatest Christian scholar that we've ever had. 
So when he says to us, this incredible leap from the way of nature to the way of grace that will save your life, it's gonna be hard, but you've gotta make room for God. You have gotta think about God. What does he mean? How does this help us? He can't possibly mean the realm of a deity in the Greco-Roman situation. Some of you have studied this, right? You know that there's all kinds of gods, a polytheistic culture. There's powerful gods and kind of gods in the middle and gods that are not quite as high, all kinds of new gods cropping up and they are in conflict. War, murder, rape. And the powers that be in the Roman world would act as proxies for these gods or sometimes call themselves sons of or actually gods themselves. But this was a whole system of theological thinking that out there above humanity is this thing called God. It's this community of gods and they are in conflict. They are at war. It's almost like they are practicing social Darwinianism at the divine level. Paul can't be referencing that vision of God. The Jewish God the understanding of God in first century Judaism was of a tribal God. It's monotheism for sure, one God, but it's our God, it's Israel's God. In fact, what was Israel hoping for? That this God, our God, would send a political Messiah and vanquish the Gentiles. That is, wipe out all of the people who aren't Jewish, who aren't part of us. And their vision was that God would send this person and no doubt in the first century, they had hopes that the Messiah would hang all those dirty Romans up on their own crosses. Our God is stronger than your God, a tribal God. Monotheism, yes, but our God. It doesn't seem to me that Paul can be referencing this vision of God either. Rather, I think he's turning to Jesus. Jesus, who is, hear me now, the first truly monotheist of his flavor. A Jesus who came and said, no, there, aren't this, uh, th there isn't this whole multiplicity of God's thing. That's not true. But God is not also this private, cult-like, tribal God who's just for us. But rather, what Jesus reveals is a God who, and Paul would say, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all of humanity is one under the God of Jesus Christ. Paul would agree with his apostolic colleague John in his vision of God bringing together every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. He would have poured into Jesus' teaching of the great banquet. People are going to come as far as the east is from the west. Everybody brought together one God, one father, one parent of all. And it would take the church centuries to figure this out, the doctrine of the Trinity. But Jesus and Paul sow the seeds of a vision of God in community. Father, Son, and Spirit. One unified community of God. In fact, we might imagine that in the realm of God, right now the angels are playing the piano and there are three chairs in a circle pointed outward and Father, Son, and Spirit are running in a circle, not in competition, 
but in celebration. Not in scarcity, but in abundance. Not in conflict and fighting and playing out the way of nature, but enjoying the way of grace. No member of the Trinity greater than the other. The Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. The Spirit sends the Son and the Son sends the Spirit. The rich Trinitarian theology of Jesus who offers up to us the picture of a God in community in perfect oneness, a community of grace where everyone is serving the other. And Jesus says to us, Christians, those who claim to follow me, now live this way. Live this way. Let this be the model for you on the earth. This becomes your theological foundation and your marching orders for a fresh vision of life. So let's get practical then. What do we do? Two weeks, two days. Yippee. Another American election. Bombs getting mailed in the last few days. Bombs. Political motivation. People getting screamed at, shouted at, chased from restaurants. Political motivation. Hate speech all around, tribalism at all-time high, fighting for power, clamoring for position to take our country back, to keep our country. Social media, a toxic environment around the subject of politics. What are Christians supposed to do in this environment, I ask you? How do we live out the theology of Jesus for who God is and what this ought to look like? C.S. Lewis was uh, talking with a friend and he was noting that often there are many dogs and cats, dogs and cats that actually enjoy the affection of one another. Uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, friend uh, replied to him, well, I'll bet you that those dogs don't tell any of their other dog friends about that. <laughs> Lewis goes on to say that dogs and cats should be raised together. Christians, do you hear me this morning? Dogs and cats together. If you're a dog, it's time to start building bridges with the cats. If you're a cat, it's time to start building bridges with the dogs. If the story of Christianity is that we got sucked into this political morass, and did nothing but contribute to the violence and the hate, shame on us. As Christians, it is our obligation, if we are to live into the theology of Jesus Christ, to rise above into a whole new world of grace that lives out the beauty of Trinity. And what of the world of Christianity, of church, even uh, the denomination to which this congregation is a part, the Adventist movement, in an era of tribalism and fighting, in an era when we're just ripping each other apart? By the way, you know where that comes from, don't you? Do you, do you know where that? It's, it's the first major conflict in Scripture, Cain and Abel. Cain goes off and says, I'm going to do my own worship service, and my own, I'm going to have my own private religion now. 
and somebody gets killed. You hear me? My religion's better and somebody gets killed. Somebody said to me uh, not long ago, Alex, I, I just need to know, do you believe in the, in the regular Jesus or the Adventist Jesus? <laughs> Think about that. If I said to Tim, hey, Tim, are you Hannah's daddy? Are you Jake's daddy? Are you Isaac's daddy? And he looks down at me, and he would look down. About a foot, he'd be looking down at me. <laughs> And the, the light that was glistening in his silver hair would... Anyway, enough of that. That's another subject. I, I'll be, I'd probably end up at the ophthalmologist trying to solve the problem. But uh, um, he'd say, Alex, you're crazy. I'm the daddy of all my kids. When we start saying the Adventist Jesus, the Adventist God, my, it's Cain killing his brother territory, friends. it means that the theology we actually subscribe to is either the Greco-Roman world of fighting gods or the tribalistic god that Jesus spoke against in the first century, one of the two. But it means we are not living in the world where Jesus says, God in Trinity, in community, living out this way, the God of all. But maybe the arena we need to deal with most is not politics or church, but rather it rests right here in our hearts. What would it be like for us to wake up in the morning, not as a competitor, but as a lover, not as one that looks out as everyone being the competition, but rather family? Let me finish with this. So I don't know if there's an arena in life with as much competition, like just kind of garden variety competition, as flying on airplanes. Have you been in an airport recently? Um, I was just in one yesterday. I, people, you know, we're all pushing and shoving and getting in line. I mean, it's just one sea of humanity just really ticked at everybody else that's in the airport. I mean, that, I mean it's just, you're just stressed beyond measure. And uh, I was traveling uh, not terribly long ago, and I had been upgraded to first class. Yes, they, that, woo. I felt that. That's what I felt in my soul, woo. I was like, oh, that was nice. Woo, that's what it was. You just verbalized what I was feeling. Um, but I still like to be the last one on the plane because I don't like to sit any longer than I have to. I'm at the end of a very long line on a jet bridge getting on a plane. There's a woman in front of me in this long line. She turns around to strike up a conversation. The topic she wishes to uh, have us address, she says, look at this. Every single time they put me in the very last row. Why does this happen to me every single time? And so I did what fixers do. I said, well, you have to understand now that when you go get your ticket, in the future, this will help you, 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 can, actually, you can actually select your seat, right? And then this, this tragedy will not befall you. And she gave me the look like, yeah, thank you. And uh, we, can't, we continue to walk down the jet bridge. And uh, he said to me, and, and I said, no. And he said, yes. I said, no way. He said, yes. Yes, no, yes, no, back and forth. No, fine, I said. And I don't know how your conversations go with the Holy Spirit, but too often mine go like that. We get onto the plane, about ready to make that right turn through first class. There's one open seat. 
tapped the woman on the shoulder, said, why don't you sit here? She looks at me, are you the Lord and Master of the Airlines? How does this? I said, yes, please, sit here. And she sits down, and I made my way all the way to the back of the plane, sat in the very last row. The toilet's behind me. Children who need to use the toilet and are probably currently using the toilet are all around me. A couple hours into the flight, uh, this man, male voice, excuse me, sir, it's a flight attendant. He's directing his comments to me. I said, yes. He said, are, are you the one that traded seats with that woman in first class? I said, yes. I said, I hope she's enjoying it. And he said, oh, you have no idea. <laughs> she has never been in first class before, and she's milking it for all it's worth. <laughs> in fact, he said, all the other seasoned passengers around her are giving her tips on how to extract maximum pleasure from the experience. <laughs> and he had a smile on his face, and I was laughing. I said, I'm glad she's enjoying it. Can I get you anything? I said, no, it's, it's, it's fine. A few minutes later, um, it's a female voice this time. I look up, and it's this woman. And I've never seen a face full of such unbridled joy in my life. And she said, thank you. And she, uh, she handed me a note, and she made her way back up to first class. I never saw her again, principally because I left the plane 45 minutes after she left the plane. <laughs> Let it be said. But as I walked into the airport, I finally pulled out the note. And I want to read it to you. Dear stranger on the plane, wow, how wild. I'm in awe. You have just traded seats with me. My seat was on the last row of the plane. Your seat, the first class. Who are you anyway? <laughs> Your kindness is wild. What a treat. I am so grateful, but somehow at a loss for words. What you don't know about me is that I'm in a hard place in my life right now. I spent the hour before boarding our Denver flight in tears while waiting. Your generous gift to an unknown traveler made my day. It also made my bucket list. It's an experience I will remember forever. Thank you, love, Katie. And, and then inside the note, inside the note was tucked her amended ticket. Look at this. <laughs> Don't we all want to be first class? Don't we all long for a world where we end the mad scramble for the better seat in life, but instead say, it's not going to be a competition, but a celebration. It's not going to be scarcity, but abundance. It's not going to be the ugliness and the fight that is rotting our souls and our world, but instead, the masterful, graceful vision of God. Christians, this is our task this is our calling. Amen. Amen.